Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to kessetchurch.com or find us on Facebook. This series we're in right now, Tradition, Legend, and Lore, let me just give you a quick recap. It's a, tra- it's a teaching series about discovering the importance of spiritual experience through those three things. Tradition, legend, and lore. The purpose of the entire series is to help us as a church discover the importance of why we celebrate what we do the way we do. Uh, I think sometimes we just get into a routine and we just do what we do and we don't really understand uh, where it came from and what it's about and what it really is supposed to point to. And so this whole holiday series has been about slowing down to look at these things that get passed from generation, to look at fables, to look at legends, to look at stories, and today, to look at traditions. And so that's what we're going to do next. Uh, last service was really special. It actually was, it went a little more special than I thought. I knew it was going to be okay. I felt pretty good about it. But uh, it, had, it had an impact. And so my prayer for you is that uh, any distractions you brought with you today, you could, uh, you, could just, you could just hold, be honest about, but also be present with God and listen to what it is he has to offer you this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for every person in this room, for the path that led them to the seat they're in right now. You know uh, what they're dealing with. You know what they're walking through. You know the concerns they have, the needs they have. And Lord, you are the only one who can meet them fully. I ask that uh, you would just take the next half hour, slow us to a pace that we can hear from you, that we can uh, learn from you, that we can ask big questions and expect big answers. We are grateful, Lord, for the way you move and the way you work. We just set this time before you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I said, this week we're going to focus on tradition specifically. Uh, Tradition is the transmission of customs or belief from generation to generation or the fact of being passed on in this way. And so it's something that kind of moves and is, 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 is sort of rhythmed and is something that is supposed to point towards uh, something else. Here's a couple uh, family stories that have been shared within our church that I think are probably shared quite often around the holidays. So this, in a sense, would be a tradition. Uh, Stephanie says, my mom and dad didn't have much money when I was little. Word has it that they stole Christmas trees a couple times. And these are people from our church, by the way. So <laughs> Stephanie, uh, she, says, she says, once my dad cut a tree out of the neighbor's yard. Another year, a team was orchestrated, like a Christmas tree SWAT team. My dad and uncle were dropped off in the middle of the night on the side of the road next to a you-cut-it-tree farm. They ran into the farm, cut a tree, and hid in the ditch until their ride came back by. I'm not sure if this is a story to tell us how blessed we are now or if they really stole trees. But knowing my crazy parents, these probably aren't the only stolen tree stories they have. (laughs) Then there's another one. My son was six. We went Christmas hunting. My dad owns a Christmas tree farm, so our family agonizes over the perfect tree till these guys came and stole it in the middle of the night. No, that's just, that's just kidding. <laughs> That'd be funny if they were all tied together. My dad lost his farm. We went bankrupt. Our families have never been the same again. Oh, my God. But they continue on. Uh, we were looking for the perfect tree. As we, stro- as we strolled and debated, Joseph, the six-year-old, pointed and said, wow, let's do the red one, as he pointed to a perfectly shaped dead tree. I guess it's all in perspective. And then the last one, we had a very different tree one year. We noticed someone cut off a tree and left half the tree. 
Probably Stephanie's dad is who did that. This ruins the tree. What a waste. My daughter Hannah said, hey, let's cut this one. So we had the bottom half of a tree. It was beautiful. We draped fabric over the top area, and that was our nativity place that year. Uh, As you may have caught on, since we're talking about tradition, there may not be a more widely participated in tradition than that of setting up a Christmas tree during the Christmas season. Uh, Quick vote. Are we a real or fake tree church? How many people are real tree people? Raise your hand. Okay, good. How many people are fake tree people? Oh, this service is definitely more real tree. The nine o'clockers were more fake tree. So I don't know if you want to switch services, be more with your kind. Just let you know. We mix it up. We're an inclusive church, so we accept both fake tree and real tree beliefs, lifestyles. So that's okay here. Uh, What's funny is I have never, ever, ever in my whole childhood had a fake tree. My wife, on the other hand, likes trees that look like they fit in Barbie doll castles. They're covered in glitter and they're electric and they move and all this other crazy stuff. So uh, the first 15 years of our marriage, we had real trees and she hated every single time. And then eventually uh, she wore me down and we got a fake tree. And I got to be honest, uh, other than it not smelling like Christmas when you get home, it actually is pretty good. Then she eventually bought me these little scent things that she hangs in the tree to try to fake me out, but I I know the difference. So what are you going to do? Nobody is really sure. Let's talk about the history of the the Christmas tree. Nobody's really sure when fir trees were first used as Christmas trees. It probably began about a thousand years ago in Northern Europe. The evergreen tree was already an ancient symbol of life in the midst of winter and has traditionally been used to celebrate winter festivals, pagan and Christian, for thousands of years. The Romans decorated their houses with evergreen branches during the new year, and Christians used it as a sign of everlasting life with God. With God. This idea that the evergreen tree, when the snow comes, doesn't, the leaves don't fall off, it stays forever green, uh, people have always associated with something bigger than themselves, whether that's a pagan belief system or a Christian belief system. And so uh, we know that both of these reasons ended up bringing trees into our homes, during the, the, you know, winter solstice, the time of year when there is no life forming, if you will, everything's asleep, except for evergreen trees, for they are forever green. There have been many legends around the origin of the Christmas tree. I'd like to read you one of them that I found fascinating, and it's called The Forester and the Orphan. Once on a cold Christmas Eve night, a forester and his family were in their cottage gathered around the fire to keep warm. Suddenly, there was a knock on the door. When the forester opened the door, he found a poor little boy standing on the doorstep, lost and alone. The forester welcomed him into his house, and the family fed and washed him and put him to bed in the youngest son's own bed. He had to share with his brother that night. The next morning, Christmas morning, the family were woken up by a choir of angels, and the poor little boy had turned into Jesus the Christ child. It's intense, right? The Christ child went into the front garden of the cottage and broke a branch off a fir tree and gave it to the family as a present to say thank you for looking after him. So ever since then, people have remembered that night by bringing a Christmas tree into their homes. I don't buy any of this, but I thought it was a fascinating story. Here's another one that I also thought fascinating. If you're European, you may have grown up with this, or if you've traveled, you may have heard of it. It's called The Legend of the Christmas Spider. Uh, All the versions of the story involve a poor family can't afford to decorate a tree for Christmas. In some versions, the tree grew from a pine cone right in their house. In others, the family have bought a tree and brought it into the house. 
When the children go to sleep on Christmas Eve, a spider covers the tree in cobwebs. Then on Christmas morning, the cobwebs are magically turned into silver and gold strands, which decorate the tree. And so this is where we get the tinsel tradition from. Huh. That one could be true. I don't know. That one, who knows? Very plausible. In parts of Germany, Poland, and Ukraine, it's meant to be good luck to find a spider or a spider web on your tree. As a matter of fact, spider's web Christmas tree decorations are also popular in Ukraine to this day. So there's lots of tradition around Christmas trees and about what they mean. Regardless of their origins, the significance of our traditions are powerful. They give us a sense of belonging, a sense of prediction, a sense of order like no other. Think about it. Was there ever a time in your family when a tradition changed? When somebody decided they weren't going to open presents on Christmas Eve, instead Christmas morning, or instead of Christmas morning, Christmas Eve, and you were like, whoa, whoa. And the phrase would be, that's not how we do it. Okay? Or maybe you can recall a time you went to another family's holiday gathering whose traditions were different. You may have stared in polite disbelief and thought to yourself, you do what? When? How? Why? This is the kind of thing that tradition does. It drives us to, to expect the same thing we've always expected. While we can rarely answer the why, we know its importance. And I love this phrase, this, this quote, traditions are the framework and the structure that creates our memories, the stories of our lives. One thing that's so neat about tradition is that they can be created, they can be reborn, they can be restored, they can be uh, removed. Traditions are, are, are something very special, but they're also something that I believe uh, has to evolve, especially uh, if you have grown children and they get married and their, their spouses' families may do holidays very different than, than your family does holidays. And so all of a sudden, the, the holiday tradition kind of changes and you're, you're doing things different to make sure everyone's included. I, I think this is a normal part of celebrating traditions. I also think people don't spend time enough to create new traditions, to, to remember things that have happened, uh, to, to recognize that, that uh, maybe uh, I heard of a family that, that their dad got laid off one year and they had a really hard Christmas and another family came and supported them for Christmas. And so in their family, now there's a tradition where they go and support a, a family that's struggling at Christmas all because of something that happened 15 or 20 years earlier. This is how tradition is supposed to work. It's supposed to remind us of what is valuable and what is important. Christians, however, haven't always seen it this way. Because Christians, although they are fairly uh, traditional in how they operate, they're much more ritualistic. They take what they're being told oftentimes because they recognize this higher authority. And many times this structure of Maybe a dysfunctional church or a dysfunctional religious system suddenly says this is what is God's best and this is how you have to worship and this is how you have to do it. And so Christians actually are fairly rigid when it comes to tradition, especially religious tradition. Many early Christians were very hostile to the practice of bringing in Christmas trees. And this was because they recognized that the origins were dual in that, yes, Christians brought them in for it reminded them of the everlasting God, this everlasting tree. But they also recognized that in the early first and second century that they, that they also gave some sort of um, homage to Caesar and to the different uh, emperors of the time, the different rulers, whoever that might be. 
Many second century theologians condemned those Christians who first celebrated the winter festivals or decorated their houses with laurel bows as far as saying, when you bring a Christmas tree into your house, you're simply adding kindling to the hellfire that will consume your family. That's some intense preaching right there. I mean, you think I, I get amped up. That's like, imagine sitting under that sermon. Now, here's what happened. And this is beautiful. And this is, this is probably the most direct tie that I could find and that many of the resources cited around why Christians still today have Christmas trees and why we didn't take that shoot of they are kindling for hellfire, but instead that they celebrated the one who hung on a tree and the one who brought everlasting life to us. And it actually happened due to a set of missionaries. Around the same time that these theologians were writing these papers and, and, and professing this truth about the darkness of bringing trees into our homes during the holiday season, uh, Christian missionaries who were preaching to the Germanic and Slavic people were taking a more lenient approach to cultural practices such as the commonly uh, uh, seen practice of bringing evergreen trees in. These Christians went to a place and they saw that everyone from old people to children were doing this. And so they decided, they believed through the Holy Spirit that God wanted to redeem this tradition and make it something more than him, even though it was already familiar to them. This is what they said. The missionaries believed that the incarnation proclaimed Christ's lordship over those natural symbols that had previously been used for the worship of pagan gods. Not only individual human beings, but cultures, symbols, and traditions could be converted. And so they walked into people's homes, and they said, tell me about this tree. And they said, well, this tree represents life, life in the coldest part of, 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 of the season, life that, that survives no matter what, life that when, when you have sickness or when you have pain, this tree represents life that the gods have given us. And then Christian missionaries leaned forward and they said, would you like to know the God that made the tree? Take off one S. People aren't listening to, well, you're foolish, you're stupid, your tree is dumb. What you need to do is act like me. No, they walked into their culture and they said, hey, that makes sense to me because there's a lot of pain in this village. There's a lot of hurt in this village. I understand why you would cling to any source of life you could find. That makes sense to me. I honor what you did. I honor where you are. Now, can I share with you something more? This is really important, church family. This is really, really important. See, Christians generally, and I'm using this term really broad, we start on the other side. We start over here with where we've arrived, with what we've given up, with how we are, with the friends we have. We look often at people who aren't where we should be, and then we yell at them steps to get over here to us. This is what we do. I've said it before. I can't remember my own quote, but we use special words and sing special songs to a special God because we're special people, something like that. And then people come in, and what do they feel? Not special. Because they don't know the words to our songs, they don't know the prayers, they don't know the book, and they certainly don't know how to act or behave, and so they suddenly feel not special, not included, and basically not understood. And so what do they do? They leave. They go back to the tradition they know. I once heard of a man who said he was an alcoholic because when he was a child, the only time his father was kind to him was when he brought him a beer when he was eight or nine years old and then shared it with him. Now, when that man shares that with you, and alcohol has, has ripped his marriage apart and wrecked his family. And there's all these very valid reasons for you to say, man, don't you see the danger this, this thing has brought? Do you know what instead I said? Do you know what instead I think has helped transform our people? It's the simple phrase of, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. 
I bet that was hard to have dad only be nice when he asked you to get him a beer and pour it. And I just left it then. I had a friend text me just a few weeks ago, a friend really, really far from God. He doesn't text me anymore. I haven't talked to him in a year. And all he texted me was this brutal song about the way God is lame. It has tons of language, tons of anger, tons of rage. And there's a little bit of hope towards the end, but the song is just this really kind of blasphemous sort of darkness. And he goes, this is how I feel. And I listened to the song, and I replied back, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's been a brutal three years. He didn't say a word. Not a word. For two weeks. I didn't reply anymore. I waited, and all of a sudden he wrote me, hey, I'd love to get together in a few weeks. And I said, I'd love that. This, this isn't attaboys for Danny. This is simply something that I've learned sitting in a community of people who all come from different traditions and have different backgrounds and sit with different Christmas tree idols in their life that mean something to them. When we as Christians get to enter into someone's story and be that close to their tradition, that close to the thing that's special to them, the last thing we should do is point out how flawed and broken it is. This is why Christians have taken back, if you will, the Christmas tree for the last thousand years. Because some missionaries said, that makes sense to me. And suddenly the German people associated it with Jesus, the Slavic people associated it with Jesus, and it migrated over. And now suddenly it's part of all of our holidays. It's a beautiful picture. Let's look at a biblical outworking of this. Because I want you not to just take my approach to it. I want you to argue with somebody else. In Acts chapter 17, it says the apostle Paul arrives in Athens. He goes to the citadel of the many Greek gods. This is kind of their worship center. And it says that in that city was an area Pegasus, And it was also called Mars Hill, which is a small hill covered in stone seats where a, where a council of civic leaders met. And they would go up there and they would discuss their religious beliefs. They would discuss the things happening in the city. They would discuss uh, the way that prayer worked. They would discuss who was right and who was wrong. And it was this very heady place of, of insight and wisdom. The council had charge of religious and educational matters in all of Athens. And Paul enters the town and he begins to share about Jesus, knowing that eventually that's the place he has to go. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 17. I'll also put it up on the screen for you. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I want you to recognize that that's not, that's the Holy Spirit provoking him. That's the Holy Spirit challenging him, recognizing that there's a job that he has not done yet. Although he shared around, there's more to be done. And so Paul is listening. So he went and reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Those are the places Paul was welcome. The synagogues and the marketplaces. He was Jew. Those are Jewish churches. He was welcomed, and he went and reasoned, talked with those people. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Remember those two names? We're going to talk about them in a moment. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, listen to this, and they brought him to the Areopagus, or Areopagus, 
saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are representing. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something New, very important, okay? The two groups that finally he was able to sort of reach, the ones that invited him to the high place, the holy place, the most pagan place in the entire region were leaders of the two greatest pagan thinking groups at the time. The first one was the Epicureans. They were followers of Epicurus. He lived around 341 to 270 BC and he taught that happiness was the ultimate goal. We for sure in here have some Epicurean followers, guaranteed. You, we have people in here whose entire goal is to, is to avoid anything difficult and to build their life around striving for what makes them happy, and then they'll make it a little bit selfless and what makes other people happy, which in and of itself is the difficult part of this belief system because sometimes what makes other people happy doesn't make you happy, and then you have to choose whose happiness you want more. But that's not why we're here. The next group is the Stoic thinkers, and they regarded Zeno as their founder, 340 to 265 B.C., he was noted for the other side of the pendulum. He was noted for promoting the rational over the emotional. Okay, we got some of those in here. You're the, let's slow it down, let's think about it. Okay, let's make good decisions, let's not get our hearts in the way. Hearts are important, not that important. Let's be calculating. Let's make sure that we, that we process this all the way through. Both of these groups, the Epicurus and Zeno, believed in many gods, like most people in their culture. And it's Paul who gets invited to share with them. Now, this is really important. Paul arrives in Athens. He shares with his people. He does the church circuit. And then he recognizes through the Spirit of God that there's another group, maybe a more receptive group, that already have a structure for how they want to talk about God's and those sorts of things. And it's up on this hill, on Mars Hill, where the stone seats are. And so Paul begins to converse with parts of them and have discussions until finally he earns an invite. He gets an invite. Now, I've talked about this before, and I'm going to be as gentle as I can. But if you've ever been to the Blazer game, and, or to a Blazer game, and seen the guy that sits outside the Blazer game with the boombox who screams to everybody that they're going to hell. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy. Just so you know. Opposite of what Paul was doing. Okay, this is someone who just shows up and believes that his job is to come and curse people out of hell and into heaven. Paul instead comes in and recognizes there's a process already in place here. There's a place to talk about it already in place here. And guess what? He doesn't invite them to church. He doesn't say, hey, if you want to learn about my God, you can come to the tabernacle. That's where we do it. That's where we talk about Yahweh, the one and only God. <laughs> and if you don't want to talk about it, you're all going to hell. This is not what Paul does. No, he sits in the quiet place until he gets invited to their church. And he goes. I grew up, half my family was Jehovah Witness. And I think there's a lot of beautiful things about the witnesses and the way they work, especially the way they serve. But I grew up with a faith that I remember talking with my pastor at the time when I was like 11 or 12 and asking, you know, my cousins go to meetings every single weekend. And, and uh, midweek, they go to meetings all the time. And I kind of want to go with them because I'm basically living at one of my cousins' house all summer because he had a pool. And I was just there. And so I had to get a little suit. And they said, well, Danny, if you're going to be here, you got to come to meetings. And my pastor goes, you can go wherever Jesus is calling you, Danny. So I remember being like 11, 12 years old, going to meetings. I've been to tons of Jehovah Witness meetings, tons. 
And I remember the first time I asked my cousin if he wanted to come to church with me. And he was like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's a sin. And I was like, what? I've been going to your meetings forever. And he goes, well, I know, but we're, we're trying to train you up. <laughs> and I was, I was like, oh, but, but you don't, you're, is your God, I remember having this awkward, way, way less deep discussion, but, you know, 12, 13 years old with, with this family that I loved where, where I didn't understand why they, they couldn't come to my church, but I could go to their church. And they had these lines and these boundaries that were very uh, inclusive. And they couldn't even come to our wedding because my wife and I's wedding because it was held in a church. They instead waited till the reception that was held off site. My whole extended family. I, I don't believe that that's biblical. I don't believe this story, which is in their same Bible. They, 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 Paul went to their church. He walked into church. He got an invite. And not did he just go to their church. He got a whole weekend to preach. They're like, come on in. He's like, I'm in. He walks in. He rolls in with Jesus. He looks around and he sees all these idols dedicated to all these different gods. Different God, different God, different God. And they even had an idol, and I'm going to read about it in a second, to a God they may have missed. That's how religious they were. They were like, I'm pretty sure we're covered, but what if there's one that's not? Let's make an idol to the unknown God. So Paul walks in, and what does he do? He looks around, and he's like, hey, that one belongs to me. <laughs> he uses their idol to teach them about the unknown God that he knows which you'll find out is the one and only God. Before I read this, I just want to say to those of you who are really exclusive, like you really just hang out with church people. You don't hang out with anybody that's messy. You don't hang out with anybody that doubts or doesn't believe. You don't hang out with anybody that sends you nasty texts or bad songs. I'm just here to tell you, you might want to expand your Christian walk just a little bit. You might want to stretch out just a little bit and walk into places because I don't think Jesus called us to just hang out with Jesus. And he certainly didn't call us to just hang out with church folk. He called us to hang out with people who on the outside are going to be rough. They're going to be rowdy. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to try to take advantage. They may even try to get you. But that's the people Jesus hung out with. Those are the people he loved. Those are the people that turned into the people who went after more people like them. See, we need those people, especially if we've spent our whole life inside a church because maybe maybe, I don't know, but maybe if you spent your entire life inside a church and you've never wrestled outside that, maybe you're more of a dormant tree than an evergreen tree. And maybe you need to go get around some people who are just out there living in the winter, although it's cold, and they can tell you what it's like to, to, to try all year long to, to please this God they don't know, this unknown God. As they move from marriage to marriage and drink to drink and substance to substance, trying to find this wholeness that, that you have, but you kind of keep underground below the snow. And they're out there doing everything they can to try to find this thing that's missing, and you have it the whole time. Maybe you need to, to sprout. <laughs> Maybe you need to kind of like use some of that supernatural Holy Spirit stuff to turn into that, that tree that, that attracts those lost people because they are the ones once saved. I'll tell you, they will have a thirst beyond anything we can possibly imagine for those still out in the cold. And that will become our tradition. Reaching lost people, loving lost people, messy people. You know, I had a lady catch me at the back after 9 o'clock service. She has a special needs daughter uh, you might hear her sometimes during service. You might see her around. And she said, you know, I notice a lot of people walk by and they won't make eye contact and they say hi to me and not to her. I wonder if we could tell the church she'd love to hear from them. 
We say Merry Christmas to our deaf community. We have people that have never been in church today. They're just here because a pretty girl asked them. You know who you are, sir. (laughs) So embarrassing, but it's true. Jesus can use pretty girls. We have people that don't fit because we're a church that doesn't fit. I hope we never figure out how to build our walls high enough so we all feel safe. What a tragedy that would be. So Paul, he's going to preach to the pagans in the pagan church in the middle of their ceremony. And this is what he does, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, okay, right in their church, right in the middle of all their gods and everything else, this is what he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You know what he says? All this, this makes sense to me. This is what he says. All this makes sense to me. You are searching, you are seeking, you are looking for this God who is real and is alive. All of this makes sense to me. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship, he says, as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So the truth is about to hit him. He accepts him, he loves him, he gets an invitation, and then he fulfills his responsibility to tell them the truth about this God they don't know. Verse 24, this is the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And I love this phrase, and I'm going to address it here in a second, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, all the things surrounding him in this church. There's no image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. This sermon may not be what you expected from Paul because he's so inclusive. He's, I'll preach in your church. I'll honor your pagan gods. I'll recognize that all these things that that you've set up, they all make sense because God has built all people to search for him. That's the earlier verse, to look for him, to seek him. Now, for all of you in the room, while I was riding all those religious people, those people who preach it, those people who have boundaries and have guidelines and believe everything, and you're like over here saying, ah, there's a lot more gray, there's a lot more mess. Yeah, Danny, give it to them. Give them the mess. They need to get out of their black and white dualistic thinking. Not everything is yes and no. Some things are I don't know or maybe. That's the possibility we should be take. That's why I love this church. Now, folks, this sermon's for you because some of you are so stinking inclusive that you have no sermon whatsoever. 
You're basically just like AstroTurf. You're an AstroTurf Christian. You're like, walk on me. Be where I am. I love you no matter what. What? You want to get high? You want to get drunk? You want to cheat? To each his own. That makes sense to me. And then their lives fall apart, and yet you're not really living that way. And they look around at you, and they're like, why am I falling apart? And you're like, I don't know, but that makes sense to me. I love you so much. Uber on over and talk to me. Do whatever it is you want to do because there are no boundaries. There really is no system or structure to this belief. As a matter of fact, none of this even really matters. I go to church. I've gone on this before. In the woods. The problem with church in the woods is there's no people to call your crap. There's nobody to go, that's garbage. That's hypocrisy. That's not true. You get out in the woods and you're like, I love you, Lord, with all of me. And there's no one around to go, then why'd you scream at me last night over dinner? How do you raise your hands in worship when you raise your hands at your family? How do you raise your voice and sing to God when you raise your voice to your child? These are the kind of the things that church do. They cause us to step back as Paul did, to wait for an invite, to follow the Holy Spirit, to end up where we're supposed to be. But then once in that place, to drive our roots down into the ground so that we can spring up with the eternal life of Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you what, those folks never thought about that unknown God uh, idol the same again. Like after that sermon, he wrecked it all. I want to tell you about this unknown God. Here's the thing. He's the only God. He's the eternal God. He, he, none of this stuff that you've made with your own hands is real because God is so big, you can't make it. And uh, if you don't end up following him, well, you, you, you might end up not with him in eternity. Anyways, thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> like he didn't get up there and just milk toast it. Talked about this before. If you've never had it, go home because some of you, that's your spirituality. Two pieces of white bread and a bowl of milk. Five minutes later, come back and just slurp that stuff up. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, it's there, but it's not really there. And it like has a taste, but you don't really know what it is. Like some of you, that should be your quiet time. You should just force yourself to eat two. <laughs> some of you, I challenge you, okay? If you don't, you just, I challenge you. Two pieces of white bread, five minutes in milk, slurp the whole thing up and ask how good and yummy it is. Yeah, ooh. Some of you have ooh faith. Because you're so inclusive, there is really no God for people to find. This is what traditions do. You see, the Holy Spirit often takes something known and relevant and drives the heart of God up through it. It's both pieces. It's stepping in known and relevant and invited, and then it is driving the heart of God straight up through that stuff that brings death and decay. You can't just do one without the other. You don't just get to walk around with a big stake for Jesus and drive his heart, you know, into everything you see. And you also don't just get to, uh, to walk around and just be relevant to everyone and, and inclusive and not bring anything of value to their lives. Jesus himself does this time and time again. He takes something relevant and drives the heart of God up through it. He uses paying taxes to teach about the kingdom of this world and the next. He uses the cultural tradition of a wedding feast to show how he goes about as the great groom, inviting people to sit in relationship with him even when they don't show up. He even uses the story of a prophet and a harlot to show how his love, even though denied time and time again, still remains. He takes something known and relevant and he drives the heart of his love up through it. Do you recognize that God uses all of his all of this for his glory, and so should you. And yet, 
And I love Barbara Brown Taylor, this particular talk she gave. She says, as a general rule, I would say that human beings never behave more badly toward one another than when they believe they are protecting God. We see people's traditions, and instead of honoring them and then speaking truth once we receive an invite, we mock them. We make them feel small and insignificant and broken and excluded. And so they see nothing of Jesus. They see a people who are afraid to include, a people who are afraid to reach out, a people who are afraid to be stained by their poor choices instead of a people who show their stains first and the God who redeemed them. And now that tradition wears in their lifestyle and wears in their family and so reaches out to include others for redemption. Still today, the Holy Spirit can and often does use our man-made traditions to bring focus and glory upon himself. And so in this way, this is my last little phrase on traditions. I'll put it on the screen. Traditions serve as a portal between generations, allowing contemporary kin to connect to ancestors that passed long before their existence and families of the same lifetime to celebrate one another. It's an unrivaled excuse to engage with your culture and remind yourself of moral priorities to preserve provisional experiences that otherwise would be skewed by memory. And so, this year, as many of us make trees and gifts the center of our own Christmas practice, we would do well to remember that they ultimately symbol, they are ultimately a symbol of the one who gave himself to unite heaven and earth and who brings all things to flower. This is what we're called to do. We are called to reach our world with the things that God has reached us through. Stop shedding those things. Include them in your story. Lead with them in your story. Reach for invitations through inclusion and love. And once invited, drive the Spirit of God with love and patience up through those idols in order to change them forever into something that will be forever green. Amen? Amen. Let me just... Uh, I feel like I've set up this next part as well as I possibly can. <laughs> if the Christmas tree is perhaps the strongest representation of a well-known tradition, let me just say that next week's topic is by far one of the world's most well-known legends, and we're going to talk about him here, and that would be Santa Claus. I'm going to, yeah, I know. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, uh, matter of fact, this is my Santa disclaimer. Um, I can't tell if there's a lot of kids in this room, so I'm going to be as code as I can with you right now. Um, we're going to have Santa here on stage. Uh, we're going to have him and his wife and a little troop of people that help him do, as a Christian believer, a ministry through Santa Claus. We're going to talk about Santa, where he came from, the, the character, the legend, where he started, the saint, and some of the good, some of the bad, and some of those things. But uh, along with Santa, again, code for kids in the room, we're also going to be talking to Jerry. So if you are a family that believes in Santa, you aren't going to want to have your kids in this room. Because along with Santa is going to be Jerry, who we're going to talk to, to understand why he does this ministry. Now, let me just say this, because there's two different groups in our church. There's the group that has no problem with Santa. He's part of their traditions. He's part of their, their stuff. And then there's the group that's worked really, really hard to make sure Santa is not anything to do with their Christmas and certainly not central. So Santa and Jerry will, <laughs> will, will, will only stay in this room 
Uh, they're not going to be going up to kids. They're not going to be like, you know, no one's going to be praying to Santa at the end of children's ministry here at Kesed. So he's just going to be in this room, but he is going to be here in full force in order for us to talk about this ministry and untether a little bit, unpack behind this legend and kind of what it means. But again, uh, if you have kids, you'll probably want to uh, keep them uh, in children's or make, me, make them aware. Uh, I, <laughs> I had adults grab me after, after adults, like 40-year-old adults. They're like, what are you trying to say? Who are you trying to say Jerry is? And I was like, no, I'm sorry if I'm wrecking your childhood. But uh, uh, I'm super excited to dive into it. And I think it'll be a fascinating weekend. But I do want to give a heads up that, uh, that uh, if you have small children, it might impact them in a way you don't want to. And since we can't tell which direction you uh, would care about them being impacted, we're recommending that they don't stay in here. So uh, that's all I have for you guys. I'm honored that we're in a church that can unpack some of this stuff. I think it's fascinating what, uh, what God does with all of this. And uh, I'm so excited that we have so many faiths that are coming alive through understanding their own tradition, legend, and lore. Will you stand with me? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, that in this room are all kinds of traditions, all kinds of journeys, all kinds of people walking all sorts of paths. We thank you, God, that we can come together through your Holy Spirit and talk about them. We can learn from them. We can engage with them. We can challenge. We can question. We can disagree. And Lord, in the end, we can worship you. We are grateful and we are blessed. May we remember as we set up our Christmas trees this year or see them around the meaning that those missionaries uh, created through them. May we create new traditions this year as we set them up ourselves. May we share with our families and our children about the eternal Lord, the one who is forever alive and who saves us all. We thank you, God. We bring worship to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Thanks for coming. Have a great holiday week. We'll see you next weekend.